Hear now the songs of the Lord. Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, and my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My will, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise with joyous lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help and the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Praise the word of the Lord. love the story of the Lion King. That's where we're starting this morning. Last week I was away with Sarah in New York. She was running a conference and so I went along with her and part of the conference was um, it's like 200 people that were at this event that Sarah was helping lead and it was like a five-day conference. So in the middle of the week just to kind of give everybody a break they decided to take everybody into Manhattan and we went and saw the Lion King on Broadway which was pretty awesome. So it reminded me a little bit of the story. And I'm, I'm, I'm gonna assume most of you know the general storyline, but I'm also gonna tell a little bit of the story here just to begin it, because I think it actually ties in fairly well to Psalm 63 and some of the themes here. But uh, one particular part struck me when I was remembering the story of the Lion King. And it happened right after intermission on Broadway last week. And it's right in the middle of the movie. And it's after Simba, the main character of the story, the lion. He's a young, he's a young lion at the time, but he, he just lost his father. And he was kind of chased out into the wilderness by Scar, his evil uncle. And the scene, at least on the Broadway show, was the, the intermission ended, so the curtain lifts. And you just see Simba laying in the middle of the stage in the wilderness, exasperated, all by himself. Uh, he'd been chased away from his, his pride, where the lions were, and now he's all by himself in the middle of the wilderness, passed out. 
And that's when Timon and Pumbaa show up. These two funny characters who come and kind of give some life to the, the plot of the story. Um, and do you remember what they teach him right away? Because Simba's kind of upset. He's not sure what his life is going to look like going forward. And so can anybody shout out what, what Timon and Pumbaa teach him? See, and you tell me scripture memorization is hard, right? No. Like, see, you know Hakuna Matata, so you can memorize scripture too. Hakuna Matata, which means no worries. And it's a, so it's a, it's a slogan that they live by. And the basic idea is just that, you know, the wilderness is hard, but if you just kind of take a step back and live a simple life and embrace this no worries mindset, you can have a pretty good life, even in the wilderness, even far away from, from your, your purpose and your family and your life. And you can, you can live out in the wild. Um, and I, another one of the lines that stuck out to me was when Simba is trying to learn what to eat. You know, so lions are used to eating gazelles or antelopes or zebras. And Timon and Pumbaa say, oh, no, no, we don't have any of that out here, but this is what we do have, and it's bugs. And so they teach him to eat the bug. And do you remember the line that he says? Slimy yet satisfying. Uh, so Simba, at least for that period of his life, was able to find a satisfying life in the midst of the wilderness through this slogan, Hakuna Matata, with this hog and uh, meerkat. Yeah, thank you. I was trying to think what they were called. And so he's disconnected from the realities of his life. He's not really living like a lion, living like a lion anymore. He's more living like a, a displaced animal in a midlife crisis. Uh, and he's unaccountable for the responsibilities or calling that he really has, which the story begins to unfold later. So let that kind of be the, the starting point for us approaching Psalm 63. Our reality, you and I, as humans, is that we are all naturally, because of sin, in a wilderness situation. In spiritual need, longing for spiritual satisfaction. Because of sin that we are born into, we are like Simba, chased away from our, our normal, idyllic, purposeful circumstance, spiritually speaking. And yet many of us, like Simba, have seemingly become content to ignore the reality that we're actually in the wilderness. And I think many of us in life get to a place where we are satisfied with eating bugs. Slimy, yet satisfying. And in large part, it's because we are ignoring the reality that we're actually living in a wilderness spiritually. David is in a real wilderness in Psalm 63. You'll notice the heading of Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, the region of Israel around Jerusalem. He's in the physical wilderness where there are physical realities that are confronting him. So again, for us, we're looking at it metaphorically. David was looking at it literally. The wilderness is a place of danger where there are wild animals that actually could eat him up, like jackals that are mentioned at the end of the passage. There are enemies that are searching for him. 
he is in danger because of the spiritual climate where he, because of the physical climate where he is. He's exposed to the elements of weather. It could be extremely hot during the day in Israel. It can be extremely cold at night in Israel. That's the reality of the wilderness. Storms could come and cause severe problems for him. He was in a place of desperation for basic necessities, food, water, and shelter. But David does not take any of these physical things and make it his focus. He actually is, is in need of each of those things I just mentioned. Safety, real water, real food, real shelter. He's in need of those things, but he instead in this psalm, while in the physical wilderness, focuses on the spiritual realities. And that's because he explicitly mentions the soul. My soul thirsts for you, he says. There are spiritual realities in a spiritual wilderness as well. And this is the point of connection for you and me. Is his, he names his greatest soul need, which is not physical food or water, but he states it right off the bat. The very first part, his greatest need is God. Before complaining about any of his needs, he says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. And then he, later in the psalm, names what would be his greatest satisfaction, which is not a giant urn of water. It's not a full course meal. It's not a giant house to go into. It's not even a rain jacket. He names his greatest satisfaction in verse two as, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary not a physical sanctuary, but in God's sanctuary where his presence is. Beholding your power and glory, your steadfast love is greater than life. That's his satisfaction that he's longing for in the middle of the real wilderness. And so David is inviting us into his story here this morning for us to also find our greatest spiritual satisfaction in the midst of our own spiritual wilderness. And we all have different experiences in the wilderness of your own soul right now. And in part, we've already addressed some of that by coming to prayer a few minutes ago in silence. But now we get to, to be reminded of core truths about the reality that we get to live into and the satisfaction we get to find in our moments of greatest soul need. So let's dive into Psalm 63 and see what God has in store for us this morning. Uh, two big waves. We're going to look at, like David did, our greatest need and our satisfaction, what we can find. Our greatest need and our soul satisfaction. So let's, let's look at verse 1, our greatest need in life. What is your greatest need in life? I would, I would ask, maybe another way to phrase the question is, whenever you're looking for satisfaction in life, what do you look to? Whenever you look to be satisfied or, or content or at ease, what do you look to? Or if you could fill in the blank of what I'm about to say, how would you fill in this blank? If I could just get blank figured out or squared away or eliminated or added in, 
then I would be satisfied. If I could just get blank figured out or added in or eliminated, then I'd be satisfied. Where are you today with that question, with that blank? What is it that is keeping you up at night that maybe is saying, oh, if, if I could just get that part figured out in my life, then I think I would be okay. Then I think I could go on and live a satisfying life. Our spiritual life is, is, is a reality today that we need to, to really take seriously. And again, David relates it here to the wilderness experience. And again, I, I just want to emphasize, apart from Jesus, which we'll get to as we conclude the sermon in a few moments, but without Jesus, our spiritual life is like a barren wilderness, dry and weary land. Let's go just these one by one, a dry land spiritually. What's a dry land like? Maybe you've been to Arizona or somewhere where it's just very dry. Nothing grows very well in dry environments, on its own at least. You have to have assistance from something else. It's dry climates are not self-sustaining. You have to add in other things. They're brown, they're hard, and in general, they're kind of life depleting. They, they suck literally the moisture out of the air and they're barren, they're dry, it's just bone dry. Only in recent years, like in the last century, have people really figured out how to live comfortably and normally in dry places. And so I'll, I'll give you the example of Dubai. You've heard of Dubai? It's this rich, oil-driven money place in the Middle East that is literally a megacity built in the middle of the desert. And it's because they had all this oil money to just throw tons of infrastructure and build a thriving city, but it's literally in the middle of the desert. But before that, it was basically just nomadic, nomadic people, Bedouin people who were passing through. And you wonder why people had to have camels. It's because there's, there's not much else you could do to survive in places like that. You can survive, but it's impossible to thrive unless you get outside assistance for those dry places. And so even the Bible talks about this in pretty specific ways too. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, for instance, there's a famous story there of a vision that God gives the prophet Ezekiel about the valley of dry bones. And it's this picture that God gives the prophet of a bleak place where it is, there is death because the bones are just dry. That's how they're described, dry bones, meaning that it's bleak. It's, it's not, it can't be self-sustaining. It is a bleak circumstance. And of course, the beautiful part of the story is how God gives the vision of how these dry bones begin to have meat added to them, flesh added to them. They begin to walk and they begin to have new life. And that's the, that's the part that our soul clings to. It's like God brings new life into dry bones. But the reality is they were dry. They were dead. They were bleak. Secondly, we talk about the land being weary. It says... A dry and weary land. So think about that word weary. What does that word do in you when I say weary? Uh, synonyms could be tired, fatigued, exasperated. Again, picture Simba. He's passed out. He's just laying in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness. 
because he ran out of energy, because he didn't have water, he didn't have shade, he didn't have food. He's weary, he's just tired. So a weary land is a place you just wanna lay down and give up. It takes the energy out of you. It doesn't spur you on to live a life that you feel like you were meant to live. It, it zaps the energy from you. That's what a weary land looks like. And again, we're talking spiritually. A, a life apart from Jesus is a weary life. That's why Jesus says later, come to me all who labor and are weary or heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Because he knows that's our reality apart from being connected to his life source. And then next it says here, there is no water. This is maybe the starkest reality. When there's no water, there's no life. There's no long-term hope for living without water. I could barely sit through 20 minutes of singing songs without needing to take a sip of water. You know how long people say you can live without drinking one drop of water? Three days. That's it. Three days. That's, that's the general consensus, is if, if you go three days without one drop of water, it goes downhill immediately. That's not that long. I could be gone by Wednesday if I stopped drinking water right now. Can you imagine that? I did find an article that the BBC had out in 2020, and it was talking about uh, this exact thing, how long you can go without water, and it, it gives a quote here. It says, the longest someone is known to have gone without water in the history of the world, this is their research, I guess, the longest someone is known to have gone without water was the case of Andreas Mihaikovitz. That's my Austrian. He was an 18-year-old Austrian bricklayer who was left locked in a police cell for 18 days in 1979 after the officers on duty forgot about him. His case even made it into the Guinness Book of World Records because he survived 18 days with nothing because they forgot about him. Talk about a wilderness situation. And then the article, the very next paragraph, connects it to our modern world. And it says, while few of us are likely to experience this kind of extreme dehydration, around 4 billion people experience severe water scarcity at least one month of the year. Climate change is also likely to make access to clean water supplies harder in many parts of the world. According to some estimates, as much as two thirds of the world's population will face water shortages by 2025. So that just connects like what the physical reality of what this is like physically in our world. But again, the point is without water, you have no hope. Without spiritual water, you have no spiritual hope. And this is the reality of life apart from God. Dry, weary, no hope. And so, again, oftentimes in the modern world, we've convinced ourselves of a lack of need for God. And so we end up ignoring this reality and becoming like Simba, eating the bugs and making the best life in the wilderness, which can even lead to some joy and some happiness and some, and some lessons learned, like Simba, for instance. We live the slimy yet satisfying life and convince ourselves that, that that satisfaction you find in the bugs and the wilderness is just as good as anything you could find in a true way. And we put things in the place of spiritual needs and the attempt to fend off certain death. 
in a dry, weary, no water land, we try to fill ourselves up with other things that ultimately cannot satisfy. And you could just insert there whatever that is for you. And we call these things idols. Things that you put in a higher place than what they should be. So again, money, house, hobbies, fame. And you can insert anything. It's different for all of us. But none of these things can satisfy because they're only temporary. Because the soul needs more than just those things. God is our greatest need in life. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh God, how we need you. That's a, that's a biblical song that we sang earlier. God is the life-giving source to all of life. He brings green and nourishment and growth to the dry soul. He brings strength and motivation and passion to the weary soul. He is the fountain of living water. John chapter 4 which was preached on at one point last year by a guest preacher, is one of the more beautiful passages in the Bible. It's when Jesus encounters the woman at the well in Samaria. And she's standing by a well, literally drawing up physical water to take back to her community. And Jesus begins a conversation with her. And he asks her for a drink as an intro into a spiritual conversation about how the water that she is pulling up physically satisfies, but he is offering spiritual water that will satisfy well beyond what that physical water can do. He says, the water that I give will allow you to never thirst again because it's quenching the soul need. That's our greatest need. A human's greatest need is for that to be satisfied. Now let's turn to what that actually looks like. What does it mean to be satisfied in God? So it's easy to identify the need maybe, but to actually know what it means to feel that satisfaction is maybe different. Because again, we're pretty good at the slimy yet satisfying cop-out. I keep coming back to that because I just, I find myself metaphorically eating bugs in my life of trying to find things that are gonna get the job done in the moment. And then realizing, man, I've lived most of my life on a bug diet. That's probably not gonna be good for me long term. And I've, I've called that satisfying. What is real satisfaction? What does this text lead us into in terms of real satisfaction? I have four things here about a satisfied life in God, straight from the text without much explanation really, but just to encourage us today of this is what a soul satisfied looks like because David has it. David is satisfied. How can we be like David? First two, here's the first one. David sees and experiences God's power and glory. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Let's focus on that word beholding for just a second. That word, I don't think we use it a ton today unless we're being kind of silly. You know, behold. Uh, but in biblical times, what that word really is getting at is like someone was really looking intensely into something. So I think I've said this before, but when Peter shows up at the empty tomb of Jesus, it says that he steps down and peers into the tomb. That's the same word here for beholding. He, like, he really investigates and looks deeply into it. And that's what David does with God's power and glory. He's like, God, I see your power and glory. I experience it. I peer into it. I can, I'm satisfied by the fact that I 
I actually see your power and glory at work. And so part of that is, is we're able to control that. We're able to look out and say, God, you're the maker of the universe. I see your power and glory by creation. I think that's one we could do every day. But other ones are the times when God takes us by surprise, where he shows us something where it was clearly God's work, clearly God's working into our life, speaking into our existence, seeing his power and glory. The second one is verse three, the very next one. God's steadfast love, knowing his steadfast love for you. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, His love is better than life. That's, that's, that's a mark of a satisfied person, if I've ever seen one. If you say blank is better than life, that means you're satisfied. That means you're in a place of deep joy and satisfaction and contentment. So again, I'd encourage you to think through what, if you're being honest with yourself, if you, if you filled in that blank, blank is greater than life, what would that be? David says God's steadfast love because he has experienced that. He has tasted it. He feels it. This, this is referring to his covenant faithfulness over many years, remembering the kindness that God has had towards him, feeling his affection towards him. He says that is so great that it's actually better than life itself. If I were to die, but still could know the steadfast love of God, it's okay it's better than life itself. In fact, it is life itself. What is life apart from the steadfast love of God? The third thing here is, and this is really maybe verses three through seven, he says it in different ways, but a satisfied person turns their, turns their attention to praising God all the time. He says, because God's steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up your hand, lift up my hands in your name. And then he says, my soul is satisfied as if, as if I'm eating fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Even in the middle of the night, uh, I sing for joy to you because you have been my help. It's my summary. But so many things here. I mean, it, the reality is, is this, this person, David, is able to praise God throughout his life, no matter the circumstances, because he's satisfied in him. His need has been met by God himself. And therefore, even in any circumstance, he praises God. I'll just point out a couple of them here. Verse five, I just, I really resonate when he says, um, you know, just like my soul, just like with fat and rich food, my soul will be satisfied. I just was thinking, I was like, he's so right. When I go and eat a really good meal, I am so satisfied. Like when you go to your favorite restaurant or when you have your favorite meal that's placed before you and you're just like, I'm in a happy place right now. That steak, that piece of pizza, that whatever your favorite food is, like praise God, I'm good. I'm gonna sit back and just enjoy this. David's saying that's what happens to my soul because of your love. Just like how your belly and yourself is satisfied with food, that's what, you're ha that's what happens to my soul. I just, I resonate with that. Thanks for letting me share it. Um, but the next part here I think that is even more meaningful for us is, 
in the watches of the night, in the middle of the night, I turn my attention to you. I meditate on you. I remember you upon my bed. I was reading one person kind of commenting about this text, and he was talking about how I think all of us can, can relate with restless nights where we have a hard time sleeping. Something's just keeping us up. We're anxious about something. Or physically, we just can't fall asleep. And whenever I get to that place, I find myself getting frustrated and annoyed because I know it's probably going to affect my day the next day. But notice how David, in the middle of that, in the midst of a restless night, or even when it says in the watches of the night, kind of like when you have to be up to be on guard for enemies coming, at those moments, he takes his attention and meditates on God. That's the mark of a satisfied person. Someone who even in the middle of the night, when things are not going well, or when you're, you'd rather be resting or sleeping, still your mind goes towards God towards meditating on his goodness, to being with him, that God is even with you in the middle of the night, all by yourself, and turns to praise. The last mark of a satisfied person, I think, here is verse 8. And uh, this is maybe a summary statement for David, as he basically just says, after all that, my soul clings to you. Clings to you. That word cling is a great word. I, the, the, the image that comes to my mind is, is just something that's locked on to something else. Our soul locks on to God. Um, my kids are of the age where they, they lock themselves onto my leg and won't let go. And even when I, and they like it because they like it when I try to start walking and they're still locked onto it. I'm seeing some head nods from other parents. Like, it's a really sweet and endearing thing because they're locked on to you. And that's what David's soul does to God. He's locked on to God. Or to use a different type of metaphor, if you're drowning in the ocean and someone throws you a life preserver, you cling to the life preserver. You're locked on to it because it is your life. It is great, that life preserver is greater than life at that moment, because it is your life, right? That's God's love. That's what David is clinging to. Like a loved one who's been away and then comes back home, you haven't seen them for a while, you hug them and you don't want to let them go, that's a soul that is clinging to God. I'm going to conclude by just pointing us to Jesus again because I think these psalms they resonate with our hearts because of the imagery and because of the need and we long to be like David I think in moments like this but I think sometimes I, I leave these psalms saying how did Jesus embody what's happening in this psalm how did did Jesus have to go through some of this did he did, did, does he teach us anything about our soul needing God, being satisfied in him? And the answer is, of course, yes. But when we force ourselves to zero in on some of the examples, it really is helpful for us. So just a couple of ones here. Um, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus gets led into the wilderness to be tempted by the, by the devil. And he's, he's fasting. Um, 
it's assumed that he's drinking water because he lasts 40 days. But he he becomes tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But you just see great examples there of Jesus being in the literal wilderness, but also being in the spiritual wilderness, being tempted by Satan, and how he overcomes it. He relies on scripture. He relies on truth. He is steadfast. You can tell he is close with the Father in that moment. And that's something we can look after. I think of Jesus on the cross, John chapter 19. Jesus literally about to breathe his last breath. And do you know what he says on the cross? One of the last things, I thirst. Jesus experienced physical, deep thirst. And it wasn't just physical thirst at that moment. They do give him the sponge, but I think another way to take that is his relationship with God. He was so abandoned by God at that moment because he was taking our place that he was experiencing what you and I feel when we are spiritually far from God. In that moment, he relates to you and I of acknowledging, God, I need you. My soul thirsts for you. I think that's his soul crying out at that moment too. And then Jesus dies and he spends three days in the tomb. How many days can you go without water? Three. On that third day, Jesus doesn't stay dead. He rises victoriously because as he promised to the woman at the well, if anyone drinks of this water, they will never go thirsty again. Or as he tells later in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And that's what Jesus was victoriously declaring after those three days. Ezekiel, I mentioned the Valley of Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37. Do you know what Ezekiel 47 talks about? It talks about a a future day where there's a river that's flowing out of Jerusalem, out of the temple, that is bringing new life, endless new life because of this river that is flowing out, bringing nourishment to the nations. The book of Revelation, I'm just going to finish with a couple of these because these are, these are life-giving verses. Revelation talks about these, this future day when God makes all things right. Revelation 7, 16. On that day they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then just two more. Revelation 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without pain. And then 22:17, this is the fourth to last verse from the whole Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. It's an invitation. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life for free. For free, without price. Your need can be satisfied in Jesus today and forever. You don't have to live in thirst. I'm going to close by giving you just an image of the soul. Um, 
it's from a book uh, talking about the care for our soul. And the, the title, it's on a, the prologue of a book, and it's called The Keeper of the Stream. I just want to read this for you as, as kind of a closing image for you to ponder on, of the importance of caring for your soul. Again, staying away from the slimy yet satisfying temptation of life. It says this. This is from a man named John Ortland, so I give him credit for this. It says, there once was a town high up in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream. The stream was fed by springs that were old as the earth and deep as the sea. The water was clear like crystal. Children laughed and played beside it. Swans and geese swam on it. You could see the rocks and the sand and the rainbow trout that, swam, that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. And high up in the hills, far away from anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as the keeper of the springs. He had been hired so long ago that now no one could remember a time when he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to the other in the hills, removing branches or fallen leaves or debris that might pollute the water. But his work was fairly unseen. One year, the town council decided that they had better things to do with their money. No one supervised the old man anyway. They had roads to repair and taxes to collect and services to offer, and giving money to an unseen stream cleaner had become a luxury they no longer could afford. So the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the springs went untended. Twigs and branches, and worse, muddied the liquid flow. Mud and silt compacted the creek bed. Farm wastes turned parts of the streams into stagnant bogs. For a short time, no one in the village seemed to notice. But after a while, the water was not the same. It began to look brackish. The swans flew away to live elsewhere. The water no longer had a crisp scent that, children, that drew children to play by it. Some people in the town began to grow ill. All noticed the loss of sparkling beauty that used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The city council reconvened. The money was found. The old man was rehired. After yet another time, the springs were cleaned. The stream was pure. Children played again on its banks. Illness was replaced by health. The swans came home. The village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. Dallas Willard has this final quote. Our soul is like a stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other area of our life. When that stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is then profusely rooted in the vastness of God and his kingdom, including nature. And all else within us is enlivened and directed by that stream. Therefore, we are in harmony with God, reality, and the rest of human nature and nature at large. Jesus is the need that helps your soul be finding true life. So do you go to Jesus and give him your soul day by day, as David did. Let me close us in prayer. Father, I pray for each person here and for myself that uh, we would go to the fountain of living water and find true life. 
No other fountain known, nothing but the blood of Jesus, as one song says. So Lord, we want to taste the living water that you offer us. Beckon us to come. May we find life there. In Jesus' name, amen.